Hey there, Discerning ThoughtBot podcast listener. I just wanted to take a quick moment to ask for your feedback. There's so many cool things that we'd love to do with all the shows and want to know how you feel about our sponsor reads and the possibility of starting a Patreon-style campaign to make them all possible. If you could head over to tbot.io slash survey for a super short questionnaire, your input would be much appreciated. That link again is tbot.io slash survey. And hey, thanks. How does your son force lightning you? When he's mad, he just like looks at me and like puts his hand out like he's force lightning me. Oh, but he doesn't actually shoot lightning at you. He hasn't learned that yet. No, he's still okay. he's still working on the Jedi part. He hasn't quite come around to the Sith just yet. I don't know. I thought maybe there was like a toy or something <laughs> that you were referring to. He is going to be Darth Vader for Halloween. That'll be exciting. Yeah, we we call Halloween Thanksgiving in Canada apparently. <laughs> Do you not do Halloween in Canada? No, they're just really thankful for candy. <laughs> <laughs> I actually don't know if they do Halloween up here. But uh, Monday is Thanksgiving, so I'm on a hashtag one true Thanksgiving kick right now. What is what is the one true Thanksgiving? Which one? The, the, the fourth Thursday in November. Hmm. Halloween is celebrated in Canada, by the way. That's good to know. That's what uh, timeanddate.com tells me. And they wouldn't lie. A reputable site if I don't <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a site whose API I don't want to have to interact with. <laughs> What's new in space this week? Nothing. Yeah, that's the problem with the podcast about space. Hmm. Yeah. There actually probably is something There's new. Probably, I mean, I'm not, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not aware of it. There's plenty new in space. We just don't know about it because we haven't found it yet. <laughs> There's probably some new planets, some new stars, some stars that have gone, uh, you know, black hole on us, whatever it is they do. This has been Space with Derek. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm going to get a new release of T-Slot this weekend. Yeah. It's actually mildly interesting. So <laughs> that's uh, what we aim for here is mildly interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so diesels always relied on procedural macros to provide the best experience. Specifically, a lot, all of our custom derived stuff. So where traits automatically get implemented for struct requires a procedural macro, and then um, our nonsense where we connect to your database at compile time <laughs> for schema inference. Requires a procedural macro. That's sort of the defini very definition of a procedural macro is doing crap like that. Then we have a third one, uh, which is kind of cool, where for SQLite users who are deploying to a place where they don't necessarily have control over the file system, there's a macro where we go read all of your migrations at compile time, and we embed the migration plug uh, plumbing in your final binary, so that way you don't have to have the migrations on disk. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so those are three things that we use procedural macros for, and that's always required. Uh, so there's night. You could either use it with nightly Rust because it requires it relies on unstable features, or you could use it with something called Syntex, which is basically a, a project which copy pasted the Rust compiler into a library, and in a build script you compile these files and it spits out the expanded Rust code. And they're both terrible, and maintenance on it has been a nightmare. To the point where I made the policy that we will only update nightly ver the supported nightly version once every six weeks on the dates that Rust releases a new version. 
just because the breaking changes in nightly were, were hard to keep up with, but that then made us incompatible with the rest of the ecosystem five out of, uh, out of every six weeks. <laughs> so people would have to use outdated versions of other projects, and it was just... Anyway, so there's a new macro system that was sort of drafted as... Because um, the old procedural macro system basically exposes all of the compiler internals. Uh, you take in an AST and you return an AST. And... There was a new macro system that was drafted, which is sort of meant to be the stopgap for, like, we want to have a proper macro system eventually, but also the core team recognizes that Surday and Diesel rely on procedural macros, and, like, we need something. Uh, and the majority of the use cases for procedural macros are around custom-derive. So there was a proposal called Macros 1.1, which only allows custom-derive and, and nothing else. So no bang-form macros and no annotations you can fake annotations by just like having your annotations there and then also sticking derive foo on top of it and then just in in your in your derivation for foo you go look at that mm -hmm. and then i also worked out like you can actually hack bang macros into this by having a normal bang macro which <laughs> creates a dummy struct puts all the arguments in an annotation on that struct and then is derive whatever right so i moved almost all of diesel over to it but then i realized that the very last one that i was going to try and port over was that embed migrations macro and realized that that can't work in the macros one oh and the and the reason so the way macros 1.1 works i should also probably say why it's why it's different so it was designed to be as simple as possible so that can be stabilized and low maintenance but like something that can make it onto the stable channel very very quickly so basically it operates purely on a token stream so you take in a token stream and you return a token stream that token stream includes the thing that you are that you were annotated and it is your all is your responsibility to include the thing that you're annotating in the output token stream so that gives you the ability to modify or remove the item being annotated if you want mm -hmm. and a token stream for all like literally the only things useful that you can do with it in the public api are turn it to a string and convert it from a string so for all intents and purposes, you just operate on strings. So like, it's a very, very low maintenance burden API. It was just designed to be a thing that like, hey, can we put this and make it stable as quickly as possible? That solves the majority of the use cases. And it solves the majority of the use cases. So the embed migrations, the way it works, so you, you, you call embed migrations and you can optionally pass a path to the migrations directory. Uh, and if you don't pass the path, we'll, we'll do our sort of default recursive lookup for a directory called migrations starting in the current directory and go and just recursing up, uh, up into the parents. In both cases, we're treating everything as relative to the file where you embed it. And that's because that's the only stable working directory-ish thing that we can rely on. Mm -hmm. Like the current working directory where the program is being compiled from is not something that we can rely on reasonably. And I also wanted to maintain the semantics of the include macro from the standard library, which just takes a file and puts it in as a, there's include, include string, and include bytes, which is include as raw source code, include as a string literal, or include as a byte array literal. Uh, and that also treats the path that you give to it as relative from the, the file that you call the macro from, so I want to be consistent. And there's just no way for me to get the path to the current file in the new macro system. And uh, I can't even, like, there's, a, there's a, a macro in the standard library called file, but one limitation of me trying to hack bang macros into this is that their arguments have to be literals. So I couldn't take another macro as an argument. <laughs> right. So that means I couldn't even have it be like the user calls the file macro. Right. 
So I'm not sure what I'm going to do with that, which is a, it was a shame. It was like, oh, yes, I'm finally going to have everything uh, on the path to being on stable rust. And then this last one came out. It was just like, oh, so this is ju- this is to avoid having to ship the migrations along with diesel. Like when you when you're deploy as a user of diesel, when you're right. deploying it, it's to along with deploying your application, you don't have to deploy the text migration files. Right. It's right because when you deploy your Rails apps, you need the migrations to be in the correct uh, the correct location on disk. Right. And that's and that's fine for Rails apps, and that's fine for anybody who's using diesel like for a web app. Mm-hmm. If you're using it for a mobile app, maybe not so much. There's no way to get a stable file location for a mobile app? Depending on the context. Hmm. I mean, if you actually control the application, maybe. What if you're shipping this as a library to be included in mobile apps? What if you're just shipping this as a library, period? I mean, if you're shipping it in a library to be included in mobile apps or whatever, the requirement would be, like, you also have to put these files in, like, this configurable location. Unless it's an in-memory SQLite database, or unless your single argument is where to put the the, the database. Fine. <laughs> I'm just, like all the arguments that involve supporting SQLite also involve potentially not having control of the file system. Okay. But I do agree that like it's a niche enough use case that I'll probably end up just pulling this macro into a separate library. Yeah. And like maybe that'll just rely on nightly until macros 2.0 happens. Or I'll come up with an alternate API. Yeah. That could work. But, yeah. Anyway. So the release this weekend will have those two other macros? All of our custom-derived stuff. And then, yeah, all of our bang macros. And various API changes that were required to support this. So, like I was mentioning, you can't pass macros as arguments to bang macros that are implemented with macros 1.1 on the back end. Mm -hmm. It was very common to, when you're calling in first schema to pass that an environment variable. And the way you get an environment variable at compile time is using the env macro or the dot end macro. And I can no longer take those, so I had to replace those macros. Like rather than allowing people to pass in env bang the environment variable name, now you pass it a string literal env colon the name of the environment variable. And then I do some I, I treat strings that start with env colon or dot env colon as magic. Which right. is like I don't like it, but the trade-off there is we work on stable Rust, and that's that's definitely a trade-off I'm willing to make. Yeah, that seems worth it. Yeah. Um, you don't have to install a special version of Rust to <laughs> to make the library work. Right. Yeah. Cool. Um, I'm still waiting on my CVE. <laughs> <laughs> Haven't heard back from anybody. So after, the la- after we recorded the last show, I said that I was going to publish something on Friday. Uh, not that I haven't. I mean, I've already talked about it on the podcast a bunch. But I was going to publish a blog post on Friday. But on Thursday night, I got an email that was like from the I want a CVE.org person was like, um, you need to agree to these terms of service in order for us to like proceed and give you the CVE. Here are the terms of service. Reply with I agree. And so I replied with I agree. And I figured that meant at some point on Friday I would get the CVE. So I was like, I'll just wait. And then I waited and I waited. And then a couple days ago, I followed up and I was like, I know you're super busy and I don't mean to be a nag, (laughs) but do you think that at some point soon I could get the CVE because I'd really like to publish the details more widely. But the whole point of having the CVE (laughs) is to have the identifier associated when you do such a thing, but I haven't heard back. And today I was working on some other stuff, so I didn't didn't really push it, but I'll probably end up publishing something. 
very soon on the blog on the Fop blog where i think i'm just going to take more of the more of the approach of like hey it's possible that password resets all over the internet are broken in this manner and oh by the way clearance was also broken in this manner and i fixed it here's one way to fix this kind of thing and i i spent a little bit of time since i was going to do that i was like i should probably reach out to people who have like at least ruby libraries that i can understand that do username and password authentication and really all i could find that does username and password authentication where it builds the controllers for you is devise and clearance <laughs> right almost everything else is just libraries to allow you to do that they're not rails engines that do it for that like give you those controllers for you so there's not many people in rubyland to notify and i think my responsibilities end there for the most part and like we've talked about it's not likely to be a very common issue but jaron visser i think is how you say his name commented on the pull request either a listener or somebody just uses clearance commented that it will also get leaked if you have externally linked css javascript or images because those will also send the refer automatically with no action on your part which makes it a little more interesting yeah that's more things that can be like it's not likely that your cdn that's hosting your your css or javascript is going to be nefarious in any way but it's more people that can have security problems themselves that could expose this, right? Which is why I think it's interesting from the perspective of just general password resets and not necessarily like this library has this bug. Because I, as we've talked, I expect that most password resets, the only way that it doesn't is if they do this redirect so you wouldn't see it in the URL or they immediately expire the token. So basically if the token is in the page and you can refresh the page, then you should assume that if there are any external resources that are linked to is C or our CSS, JavaScript, or images, or there are any links that point to external resources that the token is leakable. Right. Which is interesting, I think, and probably like something that we should figure out a way to handle <laughs> on all password reset forms, even though it's not very likely. So if you really, well, I mean, the way that the, the proper way to handle it, right, is to send a post request. But you can't. I mean, right. these are used in email. The proper way to handle it is to not use username and password authentication. Um, well, there's that too. <laughs> I, I, I more was implying like, hey, wouldn't it be great if email allowed us to do things other than just links? Right. For cases like exactly like this, for unsubscribe and for these like... Yeah, for things that need to be non-identified. Right. They're basically like log, log me in. Yeah. Basically. Or like alternatively, hey, you know what else would be cool? You are allowed to have a request body and a get request. Like that's not against the spec. What if we what if what if we just had a way to put a request body in the get request? Oh right, so it wouldn't be in the URL; it would just be part of the body. Right. Huh. What happens if you do that? Oh, we have no way to put it in the link. Right. You can't. I mean, you can't do right. it through a browser. You would have to do it through <laughs> like, a direct. That's HTTP what the password client. resets are going to be. It's going to be like, okay, you have to go open up your terminal, go to curl, <laughs> <laughs> and we'll give uh, or just use links. Uh, wait, that probably doesn't have a way to do it either. Uh, <laughs> I highly doubt any browser does because I mean you could do it through JavaScript is how you is how you do it right. So once once uh, email clients start allowing you to embed arbitrary JavaScript in your emails, right? Because uh, that <laughs> that is a thing that any sane email client will do. Did you hear that um, Gmail is allowing non inline CSS now? Mm, no, I did not. Because you used to have to always like. Right, put all of the styles in line directly on, uh, like you couldn't have a style tag. Yeah, so you couldn't have classes. You, you'd always have to have everything as style attributes on the, the right. nodes that you were 
the elements that's the word i'm trying to think of the <laughs> elements that you that you're styling and that's especially bad for responsive email because you can't have uh, media queries right but gmail is improving this yes so now gmail allows uh Style Good types. for Gmail. What about the forty percent of other? I don't know. I made that number up. It could be less. Could be more. What do I know? You know, it doesn't. Does it really matter? If I mean, I guess it matters for people like I don't know Mailchimp or something like that that can automatically do this for you and be like, ta-da! All your, you know, anybody who's on a gmail.com email address gets this improved email. Yep. But then you have all those Google apps for your domain. Although I guess you could probably check by checking the MX record, see where it points to, and be like, oh, this is this is going through Gmail. But you don't know that they're using Gmail as their client. So it doesn't really help that much. Well, I mean, you just have the style tag there. And then, and then it just works if it's there. Right. But if it's not, then you'd want to have the inline styles. Right. So you always need to send the inline styles, which would always override the style tag. Because they're bang more important. specific. <laughs> bang important. Yeah, I guess so. I don't or, know. Um, I mean, you can definitely, for certain things, if your media queries are all overriding things that aren't necessarily specific, like you could always have the, the non-responsive stuff in line and then the responsive stuff in uh, the media query structured in such a way that yeah. they are always able to override it because they're specifically not attributes that are yeah. conflicting. Yeah, so you could work the cascade that way. And I think that... It's unlikely that people would do that on their own, but like platforms might make this a feature that they can support easily for you. Right. Well, I know I, I, if I remember correctly, Microsoft quickly followed it up by announcing that they were following suit yeah. with Outlook.com. Yeah, I mean, that's really the, the key is like it's like when a browser implements a new feature, right? And then yeah. there's a, if it's a cool enough feature, there's a race to implement that everywhere. Mail's just a little bit slower because the actual non-web-based mail clients are a lot slower to catch up to these things. Like, who knows how long it'll be till the built-in iPhone email client. And, like, we like to complain that there's a lot of browsers to support. There's way more email clients (laughs) than there are browsers (laughs) that have a significant usage as well. Yeah. Across a large variety of devices with, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Email's hard. Yeah, we got all the people at Thoughtbot who use Mutt, so they don't care about your responsive email. <laughs> at my job uh, before Thoughtbot, email delivery was a big part of uh, of our thing because uh, part of our platform was marketing software, and uh, ultimately we were delivering spam. Mm-hmm. Like at the end of the day, we were just enabling our clients to deliver spam, even though like it, it was they weren't supposed to use it for spam. If you don't know how to write a decent marketing email, that is spam. Uh, And so I learned I I ended up learning a lot about spam detection and how to work around spam detection and on the SMTP protocol, uh, which you think that people are loose with the HTTP spec. Boy, people are really loose with the SMTP spec. Like no client actually properly implements it. No server actually properly implements it. Yeah. So like even even aside from clients, just actually getting an email delivered consistently from one from one place to another. Right. Uh, with like your with the with the headers that you expect to be intact intact. And that's it's basically the same with all mail protocols because IMAP has the same issue where it's like nobody quite does it according to spec and the spec is often ambiguous. Yeah. And it's a large part of the reason why or at least I've heard that it's a large part of the reason why Gmail has now moved to a REST API for mail because IMAP is just mostly kind of garbagey. It. it <laughs> For major providers, it works okay. So, like, 
IMAP clients for Gmail have gotten to the point where they're okay because they understand like, oh, IMAP, uh, Gmail's IMAP does this thing that's slightly different, right. like with labels and folders, you know, that whole thing. But now there's just a Gmail, there's just a REST in interface for Gmail um, with clients built on top of that, which is cool if you're building a specific Gmail client, I suppose. Or I guess you could yeah. ship a bunch of adapters. Who needs who needs common <laughs> specs? Let's just so build I mean, adapters for not everything. Email. <laughs> That would just be crazy talk. A, a, a common interface through which we can communicate to each other over the internet? That's crazy talk. We already have Twitter. <laughs> Everybody should just comply to the to the Twitter spec. Yeah, if you can't say it in 140 characters or less, then oh well. It's not we're saying. Can't be said anymore unless you go on a tweet storm. Yeah. So that's where uh, that's where I'm at. <laughs> <laughs> that was my exciting news for oh the other exciting news was the bundler security uh bundler managed to get a cve uh oh yeah well, well did actually, they ever, did bundler, they didn't even issue a cve yeah right? bundler did not get it somebody who reported the issue to bundler got it and uh like did the public disclosure after it had been fixed in bundler 2 and not backport bundler 1 and it, he said that they hadn't received a response in like eight months or something i forget exactly what it was we can link to the article but it was like we have like they haven't shown an interest in fixing this in 1x. Somebody did open up an issue on Bundler that was like, hey, what's the deal? And who is it that's maintaining indirect? Who is that? Andre Arco. Yeah, so he responded and was like, I haven't heard anything about this. Which is weird, because I mean, the author of the article claims that he has been in contact with people on the Bundler team. So there seems to be some sort of communication issue there, or somebody's lying. I don't know. And then eventually a new issue got opened up, which we can link to on Bundler about how they were going to work around this or how they were going to it was basically like what i took away from it was andre saying this isn't a new issue this is exactly how we said that it was going to work you all just misunderstood how we said it was going to work because we didn't do a great job communicating it but that doesn't see like when you read so the issue is basically like if you have a global source in your gem file, like your gem file usually says Ruby gem, source Ruby gems at the top. Do you even have to say that anymore, or is it automatically assumed? You uh, always have to say it now. Okay. It was automatically assumed, but it was the non-HTTPS source, so uh, it gives you a warning if you don't specify the HTTPS version. Right. So you would have like source HTTPS rubygems.org? Yes. I don't know. Um, Org. You'd have that at the top of the file, and then you would list your gems. And then you'd be like, oh, actually, I have this gem from Rails Assets. So I would add, so maybe what you would do is add another line at the top that was another source that said, like, railsassets.org. And then you would put, you know, in the gem, you would put gem, you know, I don't know, moment.js, you know, Rails Assets moment.js or something. And unfortunately, what that meant was that depending on the order of those sources, any one of your gems could be sourced from that other source. So it could pull down Rails from this other source when you really meant for Rails to be pulled down from rubygems.org. Right. And so they got around that by saying, we, what, how is it now? When you try and go, when you, if you add a second source, it, it warns you and says, use a source block. Uh, so when you, add, when you have two sources and there is ambiguity, it warns you. Right. You can either use a source block where you say, source, Rails assets, these gems, or in line, you can give it a source option and tell it to use Rails assets or whatever your right. other source is, Gem Fury, whatever the case may be. And then the bug is when it when it gets that source specified on one gem, it starts assuming that source for every gem afterwards and not warning right. on ambiguity anymore. Right. And so the workaround is basically no gems should be global gems. They should all be in a source block. If you have multiple sources. If you have multiple sources. Right. If you don't, 
no big deal. Right. Frankly, even if you do, probably no big deal. But again, probably something you want to handle. Well, it's just one of those. Do you actually want to open yourself up to your your gem host being able to randomly exploit you if they chose to? Right, and it's not necessarily like the gem host being able to randomly exploit you if they if they wanted to. They could just use the gem you're already using, right? So it doesn't. Right. They don't, they don't need sure. to hijack yeah, Rails. I guess that's, but I think it's really just like point. so. Consider some other gem host that you could push to as easy as you could push to Ruby gems, right? Like, like Rails so, assets. Like Rails work. assets, but I think Rails assets prefixes all of its gem names or something like that. Yeah, with Rails. But assets. pretend it didn't, right? And I was able to just upload Rails there. Right, it's not that Rails Assets is trying to take advantage of anything I'm doing. It's that a user of Rails Assets realized they could do this, and they ship a version. They ship something that is Rails, right? They ship the version of Rails you're asking for. They just slip this other thing inside, right? Right. It serves your entire application and also controller that evals any request that comes to it. Right, and it boils down to, like, yes, this is a bug, and I would consider this a bug in the way that Bundler is resolving these things. But it comes it down to the. Really seems like a bug. It comes down to the fact that we don't have gem signing, right? Because if we had gem signing and those were and those were stored in your gem file lock, then this would be a I mean, moot we, issue. We do have gem signing. It's just tooling hasn't been built around right. it properly, and we, nobody uses it. No, for no effect. We effectively have no gem signing. Right. And if we did, then or even if um, gem file lock could just check some things. I think that's what they do in Elixir with. Um, Hex, but I'm not positive. Anyway. But they do in cargo as well. So checksum makes more sense than signing for verifying that you're continuing to get the same source. Mm -hmm. uh, like the reason that, that Bundler doesn't do anything with gem signing is because you want to check the signature when you first install the gem, not just verify that like you're continuing to get the... And you don't need signatures to verify that you're continuing to get the same thing. Right. So yeah, I could... I know that the the equivalent of gemfile.lock... It's been a while since I did Elixir. The equivalent of gemfile.lock... What is it? Mix.lock maybe? think so anyway it has um, a bunch of checksums now as of i think version 1.3 of elixir or something like that has a bunch of um, checksums in there and maybe that's what they're doing in bundler 2 which is, is not out so like the point is that this is fixed in bundler 2 but nobody's using bundler 2 because it's not out yet so it's not really actually fixed and maybe you should consider having no gem if you have multiple sources having no gems in a global like un, in an unsourced block yeah and the other point is, they got a CVE. <laughs> <laughs> so I looked to see how they got the CVE, and they sent an e the the reporter who was Steve Reichert. So he sent an email to Seclist, and they got him a CVE. So maybe I'll just do that. Or maybe I just won't, and maybe I'll just publish this blog post on Friday, and I'll stop talking about it, and that'll be that. <laughs> I mean, clearly, it seems like they... Uh... Always just contact you the day before you are going to post a blog post. So <laughs> that's right. I'll get the blog post ready, and then we'll be good to go. That was my exciting, exciting stuff for this week. Do want to remind our listeners that we do have a ongoing survey about advertising on the show and potential of having a Patreon campaign. So if you could please help us out by taking just a few moments and heading over to tbot.io/survey, that would be very much appreciated. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm/slash eighty-three. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes or Google Play are much appreciated. If you have feedback on this episode or any other episode, you can tweet us at underscore Bike Shed, email us at host at bikeshed.fm, or leave a comment on the website. Thanks for listening to the Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time. Bring!